Before Zoom Info, business wins took a lot of time, energy, and patience. Now, Zoom Info helps you automate, scale up, and reach marketplace domination. Win faster at zoominfo.com. Zoom Info, how business goes to market. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. If you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, and you ain't black. It don't have nothing to do with Trump. It has to do with the fact I want something for my community. I would love to see... Take a look at my record, man. I extended the voting racks 25 years. I have a record that is second to none. The NAACP has endorsed me every time I've run. The war, I mean, come on. Take a look at the record. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Fox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with Jane Coaston, ProPublica's Darren Lind. Uh, I feel that life is is slowly returning to normal. I got a uh, iced coffee to go from a, a local coffee shop this morning. And in a further sign of normalization, I feel like American politics last week was roiled by a gaffe. Uh, you know, well, which is... it seems I, I just want to note here that when we're talking about coming back to normal, I think it's like American political journalists may be coming back to normal <laughs> and they were roiled by a gaffe. And then sure. if you were not on Twitter, you were like, I'm looking for my face mask and trying to keep my hands clean and attempting to socially distance while everyone else is socially distanced, which means I've just spent a lot of the last several weeks just rock walking down the middle of roads which at some point is going to end badly for me but not now but yes so again with Matt on this it does seem that you know the the kind of the the elite signals sent by you know the relaxing of stay-at-home orders mean that people are welcome to return to their regularly scheduled freakouts which in the case of political journalists means gaff coverage yeah the, the, uh, the gaff coverage is for political journalism the lake of the ozarks pool party Yes, uh, that it I think really we, is. We, we want to stand. Yes, we're all crowded in, drinking okay. heavily, gaffing. So, so to explain what's going on, um, Joe Biden went on the Breakfast Club, which is a radio show hosted by Charlemagne the God, and all of the non-Biden Democratic candidates went on this show during the primary, um, presumably to court African-American voters who were thought to be decisive in the primary. Um, they all voted for Biden, um, who had not got on the show, which calls somewhat into question the theory that this show is the key to, to the African-American voter. Nevertheless, Biden went to do it. Uh, they had all of Charlemagne's interviews are... They are. He is a. He is a tough interviewer. He's he's right? the Isaac Schottner you don't know about, and people don't know that before they come on the show. And then, like he's res- like he asks very distinct, very tough questions. If you aren't aware, if Isaac Schottner were also Joe Rogan, right? If this were also yeah. someone through whom you can reach an audience who you don't necessarily otherwise have a reliable way of getting your message out to, so it's right. even higher pressure than the kind of intellectual sparring that we're used to in like elite tough interviews. This is what happens when someone gains this kind of platform primarily because like Charlemagne has a history of getting interviewees to say tremendously regrettable things. Right. But so I, I I mean, again, to me, it, it, it just raises some tactical questions because like, yes, it's good to reach audiences. Um, but it's not good to reach audiences in a way that just makes you look bad. And Charlemagne's interviewing style, because I actually think uh, Chadner, I think, is is not the analogy I would use. A lot of frauds have embarrassed themselves talking to Isaac. But if you actually look at the Isaac Chotner interview archives, there are lots of super normal ones. Right. Where it's He's like, had, like entirely normal conversations with like Ben Stiller. 
Yeah, right. I mean, exactly. Or like, uh, uh, he's very interested in India. So like, you can like talk to a scholar about problems in South Asia and they just have a nice conversation. Charlemagne is more like Tim Russert's old interviews, the, the, the late host of Meet the Press, who like his identity was bound up in being a tough interviewer. Right. Like he was just going to give everybody a hard time. And it was like a test of your metal, whether or not you can you can put through it. And it's really hard for Democrats, though, because it's a tough interview, which comes from the specific perspective of a somewhat disgruntled with the Democratic Party on the younger side, African-American, who both voices opinions that are widely held by a segment of the population, but not at all the views of the median voter in America, right? Like the median American voter is not at all worried that what the Democratic Party does is spend not enough time worrying about racial minorities and their problems, right? Even if that may be a valid worry, but it becomes this like difficult, you know, edge to to walk for for Democrats. They put themselves in this awkward position. I think each of them think they are so amazing that they're going to ace it. And then none of them do. So this ended with Biden at the end being, I think, a little bit frustrated by having sort of been given a hard time saying, uh, look, at the end of the day, right, if you can't choose between Biden and Trump, you ain't black. Which became a problem because it's <laughs> I mean, I think fundamentally became a problem because it's odd for an old white person to be questioning the racial authenticity of other people, which, again, so much of this is like it would be odd for anyone to do it. And it's especially odd for Joe Biden to do it just because he is so want to do it. And thus someone should have probably been like, you know, for anyone, don't do it. For Joe Biden, especially, particularly, don't do it. I mean, I feel a little bit bad for for the implication of what I'm about to say, but it is true that the following two statements are valid over the last several weeks. One, Joe Biden has not been making any kind of negative news and his standing in the polls has improved substantially as President Trump's response to the coronavirus epidemic has like become a continued topic of public debate. Two, Joe Biden hasn't been out in public much. He, you know, obviously he hasn't been doing public events. His campaign has been doing some, you know, socially distanced virtual events, but it's not even the kind of mass media interview things that are in the sweet spot of what can you do as a presidential candidate and what can you do in the safety of your own home? Like he hasn't been doing as much as President Trump has even. And so it is difficult to tell whether Joe Biden is genuinely a better campaigner than he was the last several times he ran for the presidential nomination and lost, all of which were you know, generally considered to be in part because Joe Biden wasn't very good on the campaign trail for reasons, including his propensity to get himself tied up in gaff cycles where he would say something dumb and then, you know, have to massage it and waste valuable time that could be used, you know, doing what, you know, whatever the opportunity cost of that is. Nothing about his victory in the primary necessarily indicated that like this was not only that this was a problem that he had fixed, but it didn't even necessarily indicate that this was a problem that he and his campaign thought of as a potential liability, either in the primary or the general. So when a candidate who has known flaws wins a camp wins an election in spite of those known flaws, like <laughs> Donald Trump obviously being a very good example of this, there can be a tendency for that person's that politician's team to say, this validates everything we We've been saying about why our candidate is strong and, you know, means that anything anyone, any naysayers told us to worry about isn't actually a concern. This is in a certain way the first test of can right. Joe Biden in his first general election as a presidential candidate stop himself, you know, or like can his team stop him from doing the kind of things that people who were bearish on Joe Biden said was going to 
happened all along. I, I also just want to note that there's an asymmetry in this because the same day, or I think, or maybe the day before uh, that that he did this Breakfast Club interview, Biden went on CNBC uh, with I think with Joe Kernan um, and also had a somewhat hostile interview with the CNBC guy coming at him from sort of what you would expect a, a CNBC right of center pro-business, free market perspective. And Biden, I think, acquitted himself quite well, actually. I think a lot of sort of Biden skeptics, particularly on the on the left, would have been really pleased to see this interview in which Biden hit on a lot of sort of populist notes. You know, he wasn't irritated that the kind of right of center business guys didn't agree with his perspective. He was like proud to be the workers candidate fighting for a minimum wage hike, things like that. And it was not like Biden is not going to suddenly become like the most eloquent public speaker that you've ever seen in the universe. But it was like good politicianing stuff. Right. But it doesn't make headlines because unlike the president of the United States, he's not the president. So his random remarks are not newsworthy per se. The whole interview with Carney, like it was a good interview, but it didn't, it legitimately didn't make news. Like I saw it and I was like, that was a pretty good interview. And I was like, can I make this into a story? Like Biden did a pretty good, and I couldn't, you know, it, it just like, it wasn't that interesting. Then he goes on Breakfast Club and like, it's the opposite, right? Like a a gaffe that has relatively little content becomes a huge story. And that's the asymmetry of campaigning media. And it's a little perverse. You know what I mean? That like there will now have been far more coverage of this one line than of anything Biden has proposed to do on public policy probably combined. Which is actually what we should get to, because I think that so much of our understanding of gaffes is actually we're we are trying to talk about a thing. And then the gaffe is like next door to the thing. So we focus more on like, how could this person have said that? Then what are we actually talking about? And so the subject at actual hand is the relationship between African-American voters and the Democratic Party, which is something Charlemagne has brought up. He did another interview with Joy Reid later where he talked about how if Biden were to choose a boring vice presidential candidate that could depress the black vote, which was a big problem in 2016, as we saw in a host of states, and could be another concern for 2020. Because I think so much of gaff coverage (laughs) is like, we know this is important, but we can't really quite circle around to why. So we're just going to cover this a lot. And also, it's I think that there's another asymmetry here, which is, I think, very strange, especially in this race, which is that at this current moment, the president of the United States is tweeting that a host of an MSNBC show may have killed a woman. And the husband of the woman who died has written a letter to Twitter asking that they stop this. And so it's really weird to have this asymmetry between like Biden, like, what about your gaffes? Well, Trump is kind of believed to be immune from politics. And we even presume that because he won in 2016, that means that all of this stuff is somehow good or helpful to him. And so you'll see a lot of political journalists being like, actually, that's why accusing people of murder is amazing. (laughs) Meanwhile, here's Joe Biden. So I think that we should we should probably get to like the policy angle at hand on talking about black voters and the Democratic Party. But there is this weird, it's weird, and we have to talk about it. This is the fundamental problem with being a podcast that is focused on policy and committed to the idea that like, the reason that politics matters is because politics leads to policy that which impacts people's lives, while also being in the midst of a campaign season where like, let's be real, a lot of what we would be talking about is dependent on the question of who wins in in November. And a lot of what people want to hear is who's going to win in November. It means that anytime you have a question of like candidate effects broadly construed, whether that's did Donald Trump win by sheer force of his personality or like is Joe Biden a singularly bad campaigner who is less likely to win than the, uh, you know, than like a replacement level Democrat in other regards, like it's not something that we should be talking about normatively, but it also is an inevitable, like, if we're going to say that this matters to elections at all, and there's a possibility that it does, it 
can't be avoided, you know, and and we can't we don't have a good language to really figure out exactly how much it is or isn't going to matter when people get right. into the Well, so but I think, you know, it, it's worth trying to sort of consider like a, a typology of gaffes. And then we we will delve into the into the policy here because yes. I think that's where it gets me, right? The sort of canonical gaffe. I think the original form of gaffe is simply the politician says something and the thing that that person said was dumb. And like the classic here is Gerald Ford in a debate against Jimmy Carter says there is no Soviet domination of Eastern Europe and under a Ford administration there never will be. And that was just like wow. Fa- factually false. You know what I mean? It was very embarrassing for the president Oof. of the United States to like indignantly Oof. say this thing that was totally wrong. It's hard to say exactly why that quote unquote matters. It just becomes a big news story because it's so stupid. You know what I mean? Like, and it makes you think. You're like, wh- like, what is going on here? But critically, nobody was actually saying in good faith that the Ford administration was like confused about the nature of the Warsaw Pact. Like, that wasn't the point there. It was, it was just a gaffe, right? Then uh, the great political journalist Michael Kinsley coined the concept of the Kinsley gaffe, in which this was meant to be a counterpoint to a Ford-style gaffe. In a Kinsley gaffe, the mistake is that you accidentally say what you mean. And so that would be something like if Donald Trump came, went up, which I think he hasn't done. If Donald Trump went up and said, my administration is working really, really hard to increase the amount of pollution in Americans drinking water, which is like that is a factually true statement, uh, but he never says it. So that would be a gaffe because it's sort of an admission against interest. Then you have the sort of person says something that is just an awkward phrasing. So Kevin Hassett, just over the weekend, has been getting dunked on for a lot of people by saying that America's human capital stock is ready to come back to work. And this is like a piece of economics jargon that if you are familiar with economics papers, like I know exactly what he means. It's a totally reasonable thing to say, but it sounds ridiculous. It makes you sound like you're a robot who doesn't know how to talk about human beings to other human beings. Or uh, Mitt Romney's Binders Full of Women was also famously like that, right? Like the literal thing that he said, I had binders full of women, is a really odd turn of phrase. But like, it's not factually wrong. And it's also not like a damning admission against interest. It's just literally a weird thing to say. It's like the point he was making was totally normal. He just like had people send him the resumes of a lot of women so he could make sure he was hiring women, which like, great, you know, good for you. Then there's the other kind of Romney gaffe, right? The 47% of people will never vote for me or Hillary Clinton and the deplorables or Obama and the clinging to guns and religion, where like the point is totally cogent. It's just kind of offensive. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's not wrong. I mean, you can quibble, obviously, with the details of those claims. But the reason it's seen as politically damaging is just that politicians aren't supposed to be attacking segments of the electorate, right? Like, it's not really about, like, why do people vote for the opposition? And it's time and again, politicians get tripped up with this question. The question amounts to like, why aren't you universally beloved? And it's tough because like, what are you going to say? Are you going to say like, well, because my ideas aren't that good Um, or like a lot of people think my policies will wreck the economy. So you come up with some psychologizing reason in which you end up like pathologizing the people who aren't voting for you. And It seems to me that, like, the right way to understand you ain't Blackgate is that it's a subspecies of that last kind of Mm. gaffe, right? That, like, it's tough because, like, Biden can't say literally every single African-American is going to vote for me because that's not true. And Biden also can't say that, like, 
Well, a lot of Black people have really good reason to not want to vote for me because actually I read in Cheryl Laird and Ismael White's book that Democrats do better with African-American voters than you would guess based on African-Americans' issue beliefs because they have strong institutional affiliation with the Democratic Party. Um, So I'm actually just counting on an overperformance relative to the fundamentals, and I'm going to focus on white voters, right? Like, that that would be... (laughs) I'm sorry. I think this is why this is why either you should be 100 percent hired by a campaign or like barred from entering campaigns altogether. No, but I mean, it's just so this is a great book. Cheryl and Ismail White. It's called Steadfast Democrats. And they show that like there are a lot of people where if you just hear what does this person think about taxes and abortion and various other things, you'd be like, oh, that person's probably a Republican. But then if you add in also he's African-American. Uh, And particularly, also, he's African-American and he goes to a black church. They're very likely to be Democrats. Right. But what are you supposed to do? Like, you can't you can't say that in a radio show. Right. Like, it's insulting. Um, Also, it's like implies that they shouldn't vote for you which is not a great message. So what Biden came up with is sort of actually like a version of the Laird and White thesis, which is to say like, well, if you're not voting for me, it's because you're not really black, because that's what black people do. Um, And you should read, Cheryl Laird does an interview with her on on our uh, our Vox.com website today. Um, And it's super interesting. But obviously the problem here is that like, Biden is not a black pastor scolding a wayward parishioner, right? Like he's a he's a white guy who actually has like a long history of problematic racial gaffe. Right. See, this is and this is a, a category of gaffe that I'm not sure your typology really gets at. Like the kind of thing that, as you might say in criminal law, goes to character, right? Uh-huh. Like mm. and th- this is this is where I kind of keep coming back to we just don't have a good language to talk about candidate effects because in theory, something like, I mean, Sarah Palin's uh, Katie Couric interview, right? Where like, it was not a matter of the relationship between her candidacy, the Republican Party platform and the Republican Party's coalition. It's not like any tensions there were being exposed. It was just that a perception that she was a total lightweight was apparently confirmed by her performance in that interview. And so there are cases where the kind of this tells us something about this person. I mean, we have this thing with Trump all the freaking time, right? The number of genuinely unimportant Trump utterances versus the number of Trump utterances that are unimportant, like insofar as they're not related to his job, immediate performance as president of the United States, but that tell us something about his character. This is an important function of gaffing in kind of the dramaturgy of figuring out who these people are who are leading or aspire to lead us and who they are going to listen to once they get into office, which is where it does become kind of a coalitional issue. Because if you assume that once a president is elected, they are in a certain way less beholden to various stakeholders than they were while they were running for election, looking at who is the who are the people who this person instinctively listens to is not a terrible way to predict who are the people who he's going to listen to once he's actually in the Oval Office. Right. One of the particular concerns with Biden is that this is Joe Biden Biden saying this is the, the Joe Biden of the crime bill and Joe Biden of, you know, his friendships with Strom Thurmond and I think that that is what is being read into this. It's useful also to get that there are a lot of people tweeting about this, um, and which was a bad idea. This is like the least Twitterable topic. This is no, but like a lot of people who did not understand that, like how he put this both plays into his own personal history of talking about issues involving black voters, but also the history of black voters and how black voters are viewing this election, where it really is not for many black voters, a decision between Joe Biden and Donald Trump in which you're like, hmm, hmm, I'm really interested in this economic policy, but I am intrigued by your views on Medicare for all. No, it is very much for many African-Americans, specifically African-American men, a choice between voting for Joe Biden and not voting at all. Obviously, there are exceptions. I have received many emails from Black Trump groups and Black Trump representatives, but 
I, I we've looked at the polling numbers. We can we can all read, and so I think that that's the here that's the concern here is talking about you know it's not so much a choice between two equal candidates. It is a choice between one candidate and not doing anything mm -hmm. at all, which is what many black voters did in 2016. You see, in the three states where Trump was able to win by very slim margins, you saw a host of black men specifically dropping out of the electorate altogether. Yes. You did see that. Although, I mean, I, I always do want to say that, like, in 2016, like, African-American turnout was roughly where it was in 2004. And non-college African-Americans voted at a higher rate than non-college whites. And Black college graduates voted at a higher rate than white college graduates. And then whites voted at higher rates than Latinos and Asians. So... One reason that this is hard for Democrats is that it's not like black turnout was super low in 2016. It's that it was super high in 2008 and 2012. I, I mean, they're they're operating on a difficult margin, right? Because you're saying, OK, Hillary Clinton gets 90 percent of the African-American vote and also African-Americans in education adjusted ways vote at higher rates than any other racial or ethnic group in the United States. But still, that wasn't quite good enough, right? It just means that as Democrats, the Democrats are operating on a difficult margin here. Y you know what I mean? Where they're not talking about how do you appeal to like the median black voter. You're talking about how do you appeal to a pretty idiosyncratic set of people, which then becomes it, it just it makes it a difficult sort of problem set. You know, because the logical thing to do is go to, say, a popular African-American radio host, right? But, like, popular media figures don't necessarily represent the views of, like, eccentric people who are on the Biden-Trump margin, right? So you have this kind of, like, dialogue of the deaf where, like, Biden is gaffing but also the stakeholders are pushing an issue agenda that I don't think there's like a really clear evidentiary base that like that is what drives doubts about the Democratic Party with the people who are the most relevant margin. Right. A lot of this seems to be kind of a a signaling device for some, where if you were concerned about Joe Biden's ability to reach out to black voters previously, I've noticed that you know, some of the people who I think started talking about this earliest were people who were extremely prominent supporters of Bernie Sanders, which is totally fine. You were allowed to believe that the person who may receive the Democratic nomination is not as good as the person you wanted to receive the Democratic nomination, because that's how politics works. But so much of this is like a signal and uh, so little of it seems to have been based on listening to the perspectives of black voters. Well, so here, let's 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 take a break because we're, we're long overdue for that. And, and let's let's turn to to some matters of substance. Ooh. Support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. Trying to keep up with the political news cycle in 2023 can sometimes feel like staring into a black hole of information, where hundreds of thousands of opinions and facts get sucked in and distorted. We know it's a lot, even if you're listening to The Weeds every week. You all know, in order for the average person to stay capital I informed, it can help to find and listen to sources who are working to cut through the noise and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. Not Another Politics Podcast tries to do just that. It was launched and produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. It's not a pundits and politicians podcast. Rather, it takes a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but here are just a few that you can listen to right now. Whether or not ousting incumbents improves the economy, the extent to which white Americans favor white politicians, and what happens when Fox News viewers tune into CNN instead for a month. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. -P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. I love hosting people, so I know that having family or friends stay the night might seem like a great idea until you find yourself scrambling for extra cushions. Or worse, scrounging up an air mattress only to realize it has a hole in it. Well, you won't need to worry about any of that with Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa. 
Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa can make your guests feel at home. It's an everyday sofa that easily converts into a queen-size bed that they say comfortably sleeps two people. The Shift Sleeper Sofa has layers of memory foam, therapeutic comfort foam, and a supportive core foam to provide an amazing night's sleep for your guests. And like all of Burroughs Furniture, it's a breeze to get in your home with a painless online shopping experience and free shipping to your door. You can check out Burroughs' new Shift Sleeper Sofa and all their furniture at burrow.com slash weeds and get 15% off your Burrow order when you do. That's burrow.com slash weeds for 15% off your Burrow purchase. Burrow.com slash weeds. There's a lot of just sort of doubts raised about Biden's record, particularly on criminal justice, where he has been a sort of a real tough on crime sort of hawk. And in a lot of media circles and activist circles, I think the criminal justice issue has been sort of framed as like the route to the African-American vote. And if you go to the Black Voices for Trump website, the number one bullet point on their like, here's Trump's policy agenda for African-Americans is to note that the unemployment rate is at historic lows, um, which I think was probably true (laughs) when they wrote that, (laughs) but (laughs) but has stopped being true and they didn't update it. And then there's a bunch of stuff about the First Step Act, right, which, um, you know, is a a modest bipartisan criminal justice reform effort. Uh, Trump has sort of highlighted his work with with Kim Kardashian and some of this stuff. He um, I'm I'm forgetting the name, but, you know, Trump has taken advantage of Black Lives Matter to really make himself like the cop candidate you know, and like the thin blue line candidate and get extraordinary levels of support from police officers and law enforcement groups, while then also using moderate amounts of interest in criminal justice reform as sort of a a hook in his, his black electorate pitch. If you look at Biden's sort of policy pitch to African Americans, it is really back to the future stuff from Democrats, right? He heavily leans into the fact that the Biden agenda for the welfare state would be very, very good for the African-American community, um, which is true. So like he wants to raise the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. I I look this up. National Employment Law Project says most African-Americans in America make less than $15 an hour. So that on its own, like, that's a really big deal. Like, most people like to get paid more money. Um, he wants to turn Section 8 housing vouchers into an entitlement program, which would roughly triple the number of families who are eligible. I saw someplace it was like debunking the myth that this is a program just for Black people, uh, which is true. It turns out that it's a program about about a third of the vouchers go to African-Americans, which means it's like triple the rate in the population. He wants to double uh, Pell Grants. He wants to triple uh, Title I uh, education assistance, which, again, like that's not a racially targeted program, but disproportionately the kids in Title I schools are African-Americans. So this is how Democrats used to do politics, right? Like if you go back, you read like Eric Schickler's book, Racial Realignment, about the 1930s. And it was like, Democrats do things that help people in the bottom third of the income distribution. Because African-Americans are very disproportionately in that bottom third of the income distribution, they like those programs, vote for the party that supports them, use voice to try to address specific concerns, but are primarily backing Democrats based on a race-neutral economic agenda. And then what conservatives do is they try to say, ha ha ha, this race-neutral economic agenda is really code for taking stuff away from white people and giving it to black people. So like Rush Limbaugh says that Obamacare is reparations. So that's a conservative messaging tactic, right? And Democrats' messaging tactic is to do what 
Biden does, right? And say, like, what are you going to do for African-Americans? And you list off a bunch of stuff that you're going to do for lower income people. Another thing on on Biden's agenda, near and dear to the weed's heart, is like he talks about how African-Americans disproportionately suffer from air pollution. And he's going to do this, that and the other thing. And like, that's all like it's all totally true. Right. But it doesn't jibe with the current the post Obama sort of raised ambitions, I think, that exist, which want Democrats to address specifically racial sources of inequity rather than offer a race blind economic program that disproportionately benefits African-Americans. And Biden has really not done that. And he has a real part of like his being an old guy and his being a politically cautious guy is that when a lot of other Democrats seemed inclined to maybe like hop on a reparations chain or call the criminal justice system racist in the forward thinking structural racism kind of way, like Biden talks like an old guy who's a Democrat to a T. Like you could copy and paste him from the mid-90s. I mean, because he was there in the mid-90s as a prominent Democrat. And it's like, sometimes things are exactly how they appear. (laughs) And I feel like in the case of Joe Biden being a conventional Democrat who's also very old, like it is exactly how it appears. Like he has a broad policy agenda that is quite beneficial to lots and lots of African-Americans. And he also does not have a like copy and pasted out of the 2020 playbook like policy agenda that addresses race conscious policymaking in that kind of way. I also think it's interesting because I, I, I've been obsessed with this concept of signaling. And it's interesting how each side talks about criminal justice reform, but they actually mean two separate things. The Trump administration's interpretation of criminal justice reform is like you committed a crime of some kind. But we're going to try and get you out of prison earlier. Or, you know, if you talk to Coke Industries and the efforts by a lot of libertarian leaning criminal justice reform groups, they're talking about the back end of criminal justice reform. They're talking about getting like ending, limiting recidivism and talking about changing the number of prisons. It's been a big effort in the right is to close more prisons. When Democrats and generally people on the left are talking about criminal justice reform, they're talking about cops. And they're talking about fewer people getting arrested for fewer crimes because there should be, you know, how crimes are enforced. If your understanding is that, like, a law is enforced by the power of the state, then maybe we need to change laws and decriminalize things. These are both criminal justice reform, but they are signals to two different ends of criminal justice reform. I'm not at all sure that the term criminal justice reform is actually like it has the the political valence you're saying it does, like right up until 2014. Criminal justice reform was understood on a bipartisan manner in like in the states as well as at the federal level to mean sentencing reform. And like whether you meant front end or back end sentencing reform and, you know, how far you were willing to go on, quote unquote, like violent offenders or any of that was like that might vary some not or, you know, why you were opposing it and whether what amount of, you know, increased spending on programming you would tolerate to lower recidivism versus seeing lowering recidivism as virtuous for the purposes of cutting budgets, you know, that like those things had political valences, but the fact that criminal justice reform and sentencing reform were synonymous and were seen as legislative efforts wasn't, you know, wasn't partisan. And I think that the the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement has focused attention of the left and left of center on policing. But I think that the, the relationship of that to policy is still kind of inchoate. And that's not least because it's really hard to make policing policy at the national level or even at the state level. Like there are theoretically things that you could do, but those things aren't actually the there. There isn't the Venn diagram of politically low-hanging fruit and things that a state or federal government can actually do. Uh, you know, you can you can put all the money in the world toward body cameras and like that's been done, but that's basically it. I do think that it's worth understanding the issue of criminal justice reform in the like sense that it remains alive in the states and frankly 
it's going to be very interesting to see whether states with extremely crunched budgets uh, decide to respond to that by doing any kind of sentencing reform or whether because appropriations and legislation are very different in the states, even when you do have to have a balanced budget all around, you don't necessarily have to, you know, balance it through policy, uh, whether the answer will just be to like close more prisons and stuff the same number of people into less space. But, you know, I think that this is a, a pretty good example, actually, of an issue where Democratic politicians have found a language that appeals really well to their constituents that doesn't necessarily commit them to particular policy positions, just because there aren't obvious things that a version of Joe Biden, who it is more appealing to Black Lives Matter, does in office that aren't the things that Joe Biden, as he exists right now, is doing. Right. And I think that that's an important note, is that one of the interesting things about this administration has been, you know, a return to the wonders of federalism. And so, for example, if the policy were like the federal government should take a, a, a bigger hand in local policing, I'm like, eh, maybe not. But I do think it's interesting how this entire conversation in itself becomes a signaling device in which a lot of the, com- you know, the conversations about Trump and First Step is almost not so much about talking to black voters, but talking to white voters who are kind of concerned with what what black voters maybe think, but through the interpretation of the Trump administration. And I think that that is really where the specific gaffe, quote unquote, came up, because what Biden did here is that he crossed the streams into a world that is talking to black voters, not talking to white voters about black voters. Like, Charlemagne the God is someone who I think is representative of a group of people who are like, I am not particularly enthused by the Democratic Party. I am not going to vote for Trump, but I'm not very excited about this. You should help me. Why should I be excited about this? And it's an interesting moment because so much of talking about even the fact that the first thing that comes up when people talk about black voters is criminal justice reform, where I'm just like, As a black person, I'm just saying that my dealings with the criminal justice system have been extremely few, knock on wood. But like the idea that in itself is a signal that in itself that like so much of that prioritization comes at like, you know, that is what the issue should be for black Americans. When I'm thinking about, you know, maternal and child health, I'm thinking about food deserts. I'm thinking about coronavirus and the impact on black business owners who have been ravaged by the economic devastation caused by this pandemic. But it's all of this is our signaling devices. And I think that that's why this moment, it was not important, important, but it was important in that it was part of this overall signaling, but it crossed into talking to the people that they were signaling about, not about them. So I think that it is common for Democrats to assert that Republican outreach efforts to African-Americans are really about signaling to white moderates. But the Trump campaign people, like, they swear to me up and down that, like, they are deadly serious about this and have been for a long time. And the Democratic data people, who I think are the, the best in the world, They were legitimately worried about this and like they were not worried about the sort of hypothetical, like super woke. I'm not enthusiastic enough about the Democrats person. They were enthusiastic about, again, not the typical African-American voter, right? But the African-American voter who is more conservative than 80 percent of African-Americans, right? That person deciding I like Donald Trump deciding, I don't like feminism. I think the economy is booming under Trump. I am probably more prosperous than the average African-American man. And I am just like going to vote for him because I think he's doing a good job. And the difficulty for Democrats is that they tend to do black politics through these sort of institutionalized pillars, right? You go to certain churches, you go on certain radio shows, but the people who are the contested vote are the least institutionalized segment of the, they are people who not just have doubts about the Democratic Party, but they have doubts about those controlling institutions in African-American life. Right. And so it's why the Trump pitch, one pillar of it was the strong economy and another pillar of it was school choice. Right. Which is a thing where as a matter of good coalition politics, the NAACP has become hostile to charter schools. Right. Because 
it's the Democratic Party, blah, blah, blah. And so the pitch there is, again, not that the median African-American voter uh, wants to disagree with the NAACP about charter schools, but it's that some of them maybe do. Some of them maybe feel that Black institutions are selling them out for the sake of being good citizens inside the Democratic Party, and actually some conservative ideas are are good, right? Now, the problem for Trump is that, again, like literally, you can go today to the Black Voices for Trump website, and their headline point is that there's a record low unemployment rate. And like that's not true, right? And it's not true because of coronavirus. And then specifically, we know that the pandemic is devastating Black communities at a much higher rate, and that the Trump administration is now running on, uh, like, actively running on indifference to vulnerable communities in this regard, and saying that, like, for the sake of the greater economic good, like, we just got to open things up. And I think that really undermined, you know, he's lucky that Biden did a gaffe, uh, because he had a strategy here that I think made a certain amount of sense. And it's just completely collapsed in the face of the pandemic uh, because he never really had done anything that led to the African-American unemployment rate being the lowest on record. But it was like, it was true that that happened, right? And like, now it's just the reverse, right? Something is happening epidemiologically that is like way worse for African-Americans than for the typical white person. It's kind of Trump's fault, and he's not doing anything about it. And, you know, if you would just like stick to that point, instead of saying weird stuff, like that seems like it would be a good a good message for Democrats. But this is what Dara was saying at the beginning, that like Joe Biden may just like not be that good at talking about politics. Right. I mean, like various things that, you know, when we're talking about the danger of conflating Black Americans with criminal justice reform, you know, which runs the risk of implying that, like, you think Black people are criminals. The traditional Democratic policy platform of, like, race-blind programs that disproportionately help African-American people because of interlocking inequalities can lead to the kind of stuff that is the other thing that, you know, one of the Joe Biden quotes that got brought out of the vault in the wake of this, you know, you ain't black gate, which was, you know, his saying that like a poor kid should have the same chance as a white kid. Like if you're making those those associations that may be both mathematically like, yes, it is in fact true that there is a correlation between racial inequality and wealth inequality. And like no one will dispute that. It's still not a good idea to have a politician who is as obvious and incautious as to actually say that they think of the two as largely synonymous. So to a certain extent, this is just kind of different people are different. And when you're analyzing blocks of voters, you run the uh, danger of essentializing them anyway. And that's particularly problematic when you have, you know, people who are very plugged into politics talking about how to reach a sociographic that is not plugged into politics. But it also does, you know, the institutionalization point, I think, is really important because it both gets to what is so difficult about reaching out to disaffected voters, because you can have all the ground game in the world. But if that ground game is being led by the exact same institutions that a particular group of people doesn't trust, it doesn't particularly matter that you have gajillions and gajillions of people pounding the pavement and, you know, running the text bank and all of that. It also gets into the problem that the people who are seen as gatekeepers who are representative, who are tokenized of a minority group within an elite, aren't necessarily the same people who are, you know, who are supposed to be reached out to, right? Like the kind of, and I just, you know, not necessarily, simply as a matter of personality, the kind of person who is driven to make a career in Democratic Party politics may be different from the kind of person who isn't sure if they're going to vote in any given year. And this can be just... A, it's it's an outreach problem that I think we often fall back on candidate effects to explain whether those are the representation effects of like, oh, you know, Barack Obama turned out a lot of black voters who don't otherwise turn out to vote on a regular basis or this kind of belief in Donald Trump's, you know, ability to pull people out who and make them care about politics who otherwise wouldn't. Th- these are things that 
we can see happen because we know that the people who respond to them don't necessarily respond to all of the kind of scientized ways of getting voters to the polls that people have been developing iteratively cycle over cycle over cycle for generations. Should we should we turn to MMA, the real future? Yes. Okay. Okay. Take a break. We'll be back. Businesses have always needed customers. So customer engagement has always been a thing. You know, steak dinners, golf, in-person handshakes. Not exactly efficient, though. But thanks to ZoomInfo, times have changed. Now you can engage with the right customers across all channels and grow your business. Efficiently and effectively, all from one platform. Sorry, steak dinner guy. We've got work to do. Unlock insights. Engage customers. Win faster at ZoomInfo.com. ZoomInfo. How business goes to market. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Okay, we have today persistent effects of violent media content, which turns out to be, I think, a, a little broader than the actual subject of the paper. Uh, but it's by Jason Limdo, Isaac Swenson, and Glenn Waddell. Uh, this reflects a, a, a topic that was a like a huge hot button in the in the '90s, which was does violence in the media uh, turn young people into psychopathic killers or something. Um, and so they look specifically at uh, the the rise of the ultimate fighter, which was like the first big hit, uh, like mixed martial arts television show. Um, and, you know, what, what- and just and just to just to back up the ultimate fighter, the premise is that there are different, you know, a bunch of MMA fighters, mixed martial arts, who are competing and living together all to get a contract, if I remember correctly, with the Ultimate Fighting Championship, which is UFC, the most visible level of mixed martial arts. And so they were they were they lived in houses and they swore at each other a lot and then they fought. It, it was great. Okay. So they they you know they do they they, they instrumentalize um, the change in ratings on the network that aired this across different geographical locations. So basically, they're saying like, okay, where where did a lot of people start tuning in to the Ultimate Fighter in a disproportionate way? Um, and they show that uh, a lot of people watching the Ultimate Fighter was associated with a decline in violent crime. Uh, they then, for robustness, sort of check with uh, UFC main events. Uh, which is on pay-per-view. And they again show that a lot of interest in watching mixed martial arts on television is associated with a decline in violent crime. Um, that's very interesting. And certainly if the opposite was the case, people would be like jumping all up and down about it. Um, I, I think it's a little uh, aggressive <laughs> a little bit. to say that this, that this shows that violent media content reduces crime. Uh, but it, it definitely seems to not increase it, right? Or it's hard to have these kind of statistical coincidences. I never watched mixed martial arts on television. I mean, I think I've seen it in bars or, you know, clips here and there, but it's probably why I do do so much crimes. Is, is that but I think that this has been an overarching debate. Um, if we recall, um, after the Parkland school shooting, the Trump administration's first thought was video games are the issue here, because it seems to be an easy way to of, to sort of talk about gun violence without ever having to talk about guns. And so the video game industry has put up with this for 30, 40 years now. Uh, mixed martial arts, which form, you know, the late senator, former uh, Senator John McCain referred to as human cockfighting back in 1996. They have changed like what the legalization of mixed martial arts in each state was actually that's an entirely separate podcast subject. But that in itself was a big challenge. And so this whole debate has been ongoing. And it's fascinating to see this paper because that's been reflected in, you know, they talk a little bit about violent movies and violence in video games. And the correlation, as this paper details, between what people do in their lived everyday lives and what people watch is not as connected as we think it is. And especially because 
I think one of the things that I found fascinating about this is that is this is a a paper that was written about a show about a sport. It was not written about people who are like into like, do you watch mixed martial arts? It was a very specific subject. And I found that interesting because how the ultimate fighter depicts mixed martial arts is very much of like, these are two people who hate each other. Finally, they're going to get in the octagon and settle it. Mixed martial arts, you know, if you've ever uh, done jujitsu or, you know, any sort of kickboxing or something like that, there's the stand-up game and the ground game. Like it, You can do this in a very specific way, but they went after the means of d- discussing mis- mixed martial arts, which is itself the most glamorizing of violence. Now, I found that interesting that that, you know, it's about this show, which, and and it's about how violence is per- even even when it is glorified in a specific context, it doesn't seem to have that correlation to the lived experiences of the people watching it. I am not necessarily sure that you come away from a paper that says that people who are occupied doing this activity, that that population is a meaningful enough difference to lower the crime rate overall. I think to to the contrary, that might indicate that the people who are being incapacitated by watching this stuff might in fact be those who are more likely to be committing crimes if they didn't have anything else to do with them. And that's like, that's the literature that they're situating themselves in, right? Is like this idea of incapacitation uh, that is, you know, essentially something similar to to what previous studies have shown with video games with the internet with like a lot of other ways that people can spend their time that weren't necessarily available to them in the 1980s and early 1990s it turns out that if you give you know a population that is disproportionately you know like disproportionate number of violent crimes being committed by young men like it things forms alternative ways to occupy themselves that appeal to that same demographic are going to have impacts on crime now at the same time it's kind of the interchangeability of that that makes it so hard to credit this particular idea that there's something in the like violence of the content itself right like we've and, you know, we've discussed this on The Weeds plenty. This has certainly come up at Vox a lot. Like the answer to why did crime go down so much over the past quarter century is it's just such a huge, huge, huge change that not only does no single thing explain it, but there's a lot of stuff that partially explains it. And it's so it can be a little hard to, to assume that this is I just I'm having trouble giving this any that much credit above and beyond well yes you know it a lot of things happened crime went down for a lot of different reasons this is one of those reasons yeah although i mean you know in terms of the sort of specific connection to violent content right if you think about this from a a parent's point of view um in case anybody you know has like a five-year-old son uh kicking around oftentimes one will observe a young person, uh, more often than not, uh, a young boy exhibiting a lot of interest in interpersonal violence as a subject matter. And you are trying to discourage that person from, you know, misbehaving, hurting other people, getting into fights, etc. And you might legitimately wonder whether this person's interest in the subject, right, in doing little violent games with his toys, talking about these things, right? Does that, is that leading you down a path of escalation? Or is it, as Dara was saying, right, is it a substitution effect, right? Where it's like, you got to do something with your time. If you are interested in violence, like you could read a book about a war, or you could go punch somebody, <laughs> right? And it would be healthier to channel in the violent media direction than in the actual violence connect direction. If a sort of baseline level of interest in violence is like baked into the cake, right? Now, obviously, that's like way beyond the scope of correlational studies of television ratings um, and drills down closer to the the heart of the human psyche. But I mean, I, I, I that's the reason, though, why I think these like video games cause school shootings things are intuitively appealing to a lot of people, though, because they watch their kids get interested in like 
a game <laughs> where you're mowing down people or aliens or creatures or whatever it is. And you worry because like you're you're trying to raise kids in a responsible way. And it's like, is this like programming children to think that that kind of acting out like is good or that this would be fun or is it not? Right. And so that's to me, I think that's why there's like always an elevated sort of level of interest in this kind of topic, even if it's not um, policy relevant. And, you know, because it's like whatever you think about this, right? Like we have a First Amendment like there's not you're not going to pass a law that's like, well, there can't be any depictions of violence on television. So you could say like, well, so what? Right. But it's like in my experience, though, just like of intense interest to individual yuppie parents who are like wondering what to do with their time. So that's my two cents. What I'm hearing is that you need to get your son into mixed martial arts. This is the most exciting development of the day. <laughs> well, he is he's very into <laughs> battling, as he says, you know, jumping on his parents, uh, punching, yeah. kicking, etc. Yeah. Um, yeah. He, well, he's becoming a Civil War buff <gasps> as well. So that's good. Excellent. Definitely <laughs> the most productive way to channel all childhood aggression is to turn them into the kind of people who are going to end up reading the killer angels by the time they're out of elementary right. school. Uh, yeah. You, you just let the me dream. know when he's ready for the George McClellan conversation. Oh boy. <laughs> Parents talk to your kids about George McClellan before Jane does it for you. <laughs> that's a, that's a tough one. How, how to talk to your kids about George <laughs> McClellan. Uh, Perfect. It's going to be, going to be some content for the future. Um, so I think, I think that's about all we can all we can handle here uh so thanks guys thanks as always to our wonderful producer jeffrey guild and the weeds will be back on friday hooray hooray businesses love data like really love it but is just having data enough yeah nope oh because the smart businesses, the really smart ones, use ZoomInfo. It leverages data to unlock useful insights. Insights so you know who to reach and how to reach them, letting you grow your business. So ask yourself, is your data insightful? Now it is. Unlock insights, engage customers, win faster at ZoomInfo.com. ZoomInfo, how business goes to market. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. But that's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. <laughs>